makes the average citizen puke. Look at this system and say, yuck, you know, what's going on? I don't know about this man, except I've read bad stuff about him. And uh, I, I don't, I don't like, you know, I don't like what I read about him. We are more than just one coin. We create the world around this coin. Come, invention, come. In five, four, three, two, the evil has gone. Hello and remain indoors. Welcome to Grub Stakers. I'm Andy Palmer and I am joined by Steve Jeffries, Yogi Polywall, Sean P. McCarthy. And today is a very special uh, episode of Grub Stakers. It's our first completely remote episode. Uh, due to an abundance of caution and a desire not to kill old people, we are all recording from each of our own different locations, both uh, Grubstakers South, uh, Grubstakers North, and Grubstakers Manhattan. Uh, I, would li- I would like the record to show that I voted to kill old people, but I was outvoted. And I do respect the will of my co-host, so we will not be doing that this week. No, no. For the moment, I do not want to kill my uh girlfriend's fragile grandmother who uh very nicely said that i look like lionel messi and especially very nicely did not say that i look like fat lionel messi <laughs> uh so Is she blind i'd like to keep her alive I would like the record to show that our uh, dipshit brooklyn podcast is taking more health precautions than the city of new york which we're recording this sunday new york city schools will be open tomorrow uh, my day job, and I believe Steven's day job as well, will also be open. So, uh, I mean, this this city is really just walking off a cliff. Yeah, I mean, this is the Grubstakers LLC plague response right now. This is how seriously we take it. So we're actually ahead of the curve, and if it seems like we're overreacting, that's probably a good thing. I had to uh, travel this weekend, and uh, I have to say, coughing in the airport now way more frowned upon than farting at the airport. Back in the day, you fart, people give you nasty looks. But if you cough these days, people start yelling the N-word at you. It's crazy out in the streets. <laughs> I, I actually I read an article that they're investigating whether or not farts spread viruses. <laughs> and it turns out it turns out they don't. So Oh, good. That, yeah. that is a load off my conscience. They say people's, uh, whatever virus does go out with the fart is stopped by pants. Uh-huh. So. <laughs> So parting, farting without pants does spread the virus? Because then I am at fault. It could. If you like, if you were right up in there, it would. <laughs> All right. Well, there's an eating butt precaution on the show, ladies and gentlemen. The first one we've ever had, but not our last. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's interesting. Like, uh, if, you, if you look at the... Um, uh, there were these two studies that were done on the... Uh, they, they compared the uh, statistics coming out of both Italy and South Korea on the coronavirus. And... The um, in Italy, they were only testing people who had uh, relatively severe symptoms. And so the uh, infection rate kind of skewed much older. And then they, in the statistics from South Korea, they actually just kind of tested everyone. Mm-hmm. And uh, the infection rate was like astronomical amongst the 20 to 29 age bracket, which is just right in the center of the eating butt age bracket. <laughs> <laughs> And it's it's kind of funny because I've been riding my bike around, like not interacting with people or touching anything but my bike. But I was like, 
considering whether I was going to ride to Manhattan or Coney Island the other day. And I figured Coney Island would be less crowded. And it turns out it's just full of teens just walking around spreading the virus to each other and then taking it home. Just bumping butts up against another. Rubbing butts <laughs> up on the beach. Yeah, they don't give a shit. Uh, yeah, I was just going to say, you know, obviously we're going to spend today kind of talking a bit about the coronavirus and the economy more broadly. But uh, just as, you know, four people based in New York City, I, I wanted to um, maybe scare people a little bit as to what, what might be coming here. Because there's a great uh, B- uh, Medium post written by Michael Donnelly. Um, and uh, I'll just quote a second of it. I, I shared it on my Twitter. But the thing is about the United States is maybe people are right and our disgusting suburbs and all our sprawl actually kind of protects us. Our total lack of public transportation actually maybe protects a bunch of people from the virus. But obviously those of us in New York City don't have that luxury. There is a very functional subway here that takes millions of people around the city every day. Um, and And so I just wanted to quote, um, at the time when Italy had 160 cases, whereas right now, officially, we know New York has more than 500. That's tested. We have to imagine there's significantly more than that. But so at a time when Italy only had 160 cases, I'm quoting from Michael Donnelly's um, article, of a a write-up of the Italian precautions, quote, strict emergency measures were put in place, including a ban on public events, um, and uh, the public health minister, uh, he closed uh, public buildings, limited transport, uh, had the surveillance and quarantine of individuals. Uh, they asked that basically everyone uh, come from areas stricken by the epidemic to remain under mandatory house stay. This is from CNN on February 24th, 2020. So Italy, two weeks ago, or three weeks ago, took all of the measures that New York has just taken, and it did not, I mean, I shouldn't say it did nothing, but clearly it didn't do enough to stop the problem. So we're right at the precipice. We have more cases than Italy did when they took these measures, and anybody can turn on the news and see what's happening in Italy. So that's what's so scary to me is, like, they need to, in New York, shut down the schools, shut down every business except food and pharmacies, and just tell people, like, you're going to get a fucking ticket if you go out of your house without a permit. Yeah, so if you're living in New York City... <laughs> I mean, it's just a curfew. Like, it, it seems like such a foreign concept. But uh, once when I was in India, uh, the town that my par- my dad's from uh, got attacked. And so we had a curfew for a week. I mean, it sucks, but also it's fucking safe. Yeah, and the, the longer that you put it off, the worse it's going to get and the longer you're going to have to, like, buckle down in your apartment. And also the closer we're going to get to fascism because once uh, the hospitals start getting overloaded and... um the longer that people kind of don't do the work of self-quarantining uh, and the scarier this gets, uh, the more likely uh, law enforcement is to start taking some much more extreme measures. Yeah, but uh, if you want to join the National Guard, it's actually a great opportunity to shoot your enemies after you claim they violated curfew. <laughs> just, wow. just drag them out of their apartment. You know, anybody talking shit about you on Twitter, just drag them out of their apartment at 10 p.m. and shoot them for violating curfew. One good thing, uh, one good thing that came out of this on, like, the state level, I believe, is they put a stay, like a mandatory stay on ev- evictions. So, I mean, you can't really quarantine if you just suddenly don't have a house. 
So that seemed like the obvious and the humane thing to do. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. Like New York has a, uh, just to make things worse, New York has a massive homeless population. You know, like in, in Stephen and I's apartment, there's uh, a guy who who sleeps on the stairs by the elevator. And uh, like, he's a nice guy. Everyone likes him. I, I would, uh, the only thing that bothers me is that he doesn't have a home to sleep in. And if he gets sick and starts coughing, that's suddenly a vector for everyone in the building. And it's like they're, they're the, the homeless problem is, I mean, it's, it's hard to say homeless problem because then you start like implying fascist solutions, which is not a problem. Yeah. Which is not at all what I'm going for. Uh, but like it, it's it's alarming that you know because everyone kicked the can so far on every basic social safety net it's probably going to be the worst in america out of the world and as we'll get into like with the some of the some of the knock-on effects from coronavirus and the shutdowns and then eventually it leads to the stock market and finally the federal reserve Mm -hmm. uh we'll get to see how actually you know we could you know, we can have nice things. We can do a housing policy that would get our boy next to the elevator into a house of his own. Remember when we did that episode making fun of the Italian people who had coronavirus? Wouldn't it be great if uh, after we all die, there's an Italian podcast that does like a, <laughs> hey, I'm a dying of coronavirus over here. They're just trying to do like an American accent. Hello, I am... I am fat and dying of coronavirus. New York has the best coronavirus. It's because of the water here. They don't make the coronavirus <laughs> like this other places. I mean, I, I got to say that uh, as viral as the coronavirus is, I think that the paranoia of the pandemic upcoming is making the individuals that are doomsday preppers, and honestly, the people that got the most guns, uh, very antsy in the pantsy, if you know what I mean. And that's... A very scary thought. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that is that is. Uh, I I mean, yeah, I'm in, I'm in group chats where people are like, "Yeah, my fiance just made me buy a shotgun." Yeah, <laughs> that's that. Is, I I talked to a guy uh, this weekend who was like, "I don't like guns. I'm considering getting a gun," and I'm like, "This is, you know, um, we all know a comedian. Well, I don't know about Stephen, but there's a comedian in Seattle whose name's Hennigan, and he's like a 70 year old guy." And when I was asking about some, not coronavirus, but a few things going on, he was like, I've been through a couple of these. And it just made me realize that the nightmare that is America, it flips people constantly. And this is something that will flip a person that is like, no, I don't think anyone should have guns to suddenly be like, you know what? I own four shotguns. Probably just stop at one. Yeah. I mean, you're probably, once it gets to the point where you need a gun, it's probably not going to be much help. Like, it if if it if it comes to the point of like roving food gangs i'm not sure if an ar15 is going to be that much uh in the face of uh, i don't know uh drone strikes and and the like that's why i got a crossbow that's right i just there's that dude on twitter who's uh, uh saying the world is ending dm me if you want pictures of my penis and i know he has guns <laughs> and i'm just thinking like what what is the point of having red flag laws if we can't take away the guns <laughs> of people tweeting things like that i'm just saying there, there should be some atf agents kicking in doors based on coronavirus reactions i've seen 
All right, so let's get into uh, the the timeline of what's been going on with the economy as a result of the coronavirus. Um, the the real tragedy. The real tragedy is the stock market. So uh, to start to kick this off, I've got a few uh, headlines from the business papers uh, leading up to this. Uh, this one, the first one I've got is from Forbes. It's from November twenty third, twenty nineteen. It says uh, bull market not over and Dow will soon hit thirty thousand. Uh, this next one's from Barron's, uh, January 17th. Dow could hit 30,000 five years ahead of schedule. It won't stop there. Uh, this next one is from Fortune, January 21st. The Dow will hit a historic 30,000 sooner than you think. And, uh, finally from the wall street journal, February 18th, uh, forget Dow 30 K it's already hit 40 K on license plates. And the tagline is nothing says stock market bowl, like a vanity plate on a BMW. When the index reaches milestones, optimists post new predictions on bumpers. So um, that was kind of the um, attitude leading into the last week, let's say. And are, ma- are you making fun of people for not being clairvoyant? <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> so uh, the, the, the basic timeline, and uh, I'll admit that I'm kind of a, a dumb guy, and the only thing I have to go off is these... Um, uh, just articles about the stock market. I don't know much about the the fundamentals of the economy. And so I drew a lot of this from Zach's, which has uh, kind of daily stock market breakdowns. It says what was going on and uh, why it happened. Um, so the first item I have is uh, February 12th, uh, which is a Wednesday, which is when the Dow Jones Industrial Average, that's also my dumb guy reference point, is the Dow Jones. Uh, because back in 2008, uh, I have uh, semi-fond memories of uh, watching it crash in real time. <laughs> and um, so February 12th and Wednesday, the stock market hit a peak of 29,569. Uh, or the, the Dow Jones hit the peak of 29,569. And then on... Uh, nice. What was it? Nice. Nice. Yeah. It, uh, after that, things started to uh, drop a little bit on February 18th. Uh, coronavirus news started really kind of affecting the stock market. Apple actually warned that it would not meet its quarterly sales revenue targets uh, because the coronavirus would start affecting supply chains. Um, That's the entire thing is like, so coronavirus started devastating China and basically the entire, uh, because of permanent normalized trade relations with China, the entire U.S. supply chain has been outsourced to uh, quite literally slave labor in the case of Uyghurs and all these forced student internships and stuff. So it was like the stock market started bleeding because everyone was like, oh, no, the slaves are sick. Oh, yeah. yeah. How will this affect our consumption? It works as long as we have healthy slaves. It's... um... It, it it's a thing where it's like it's a very of it's a very efficient wheel um or like a, it's like a very like bicycles are very efficient um until you stick a stick right in the spokes and then you fly ass overhead um into the ground and that's more or less what happened with this just in time economy that we've got so on february uh february 19th wednesday the fed announced that uh the economy is strong and that they're keeping rates unchanged and the markets pretty much recouped their losses from the previous day uh and then the first big sell-off was on february 24th on monday uh which was uh the day that we recorded the uh mama mia my coronavirus crash of the stock market that uh that was when things really started diving downhill on uh the 27th february 27th thursday 
Um, the sure we won't live to regret that one. Yeah. Uh, there's a bit of irony in there. And then, well, okay, so on the 24th, that was actually point-wise the largest sell-off in the history of the Dow Jones Industrial Average at 1,032 points. On uh, February 27th, uh, Thursday, the U.S. government announced that the fourth quarter growth rate was 2.1%, which I guess was pretty good. And also on that day, point-wise, it was the largest sell-off in the history of the Dow Jones Industrial Average at 1,191. On uh, March 2nd, which was a Monday, the stocks rebounded, about a 5% jump, on news that the central bank will increase liquidity to cushion the coronavirus impact. Uh, They fell again on the 3rd, jumped again on the 4th, and then fell again on Thursday and Friday. On uh, March 9th, um, uh, Monday, uh, this last week, uh, the the coronavirus uh, met the oil price war where it was the uh, biggest drop in oil prices since Operation Desert Storm in 1991. And the cause of that was that Russia refused to agree to uh, price cuts or production cuts, uh, not price cuts, production cuts that uh, Saudi Arabia suggested. And so as a response, Saudi Arabia said, fuck you and ramped up their production, (laughs) crashing oil prices and fucking over OPEC. Um, and on that day, they actually had to pull the circuit breaker for a 15-minute pause on trading. It was the first time they did that since 2008. And point-wise, it was the largest sell-off in the history of the Dow Jones Industrial Average at 2,014 points. Uh, on March 10th, a Tuesday, there was a market rally. Uh, it was uh, nearly a 5% jump uh, because Trump announced an emergency relief package, including a payroll tax cut and targeted assistance to the worst-hit businesses, such as airlines. And uh, some of that appears to be materializing, but not really much of all that he promised. Um, So March 12th, uh, Thursday, was then the worst day since Black Monday, October 19th, 1987, when the Dow dropped 22.6 percentage points. Um, That was in 1987. Uh, Also, uh, really fun show with uh, Don Cheadle and uh, some guy from Girls, uh, they uh, have a scene where they do a pledge drive for the Mujahideen and give them a giant check. Uh, yeah. And uh, I, at that time, I was in the womb, and Huey Lewis, Lewis in the News was sweeping the nation. And the uh, circuit breaker was pulled for a 15-minute pause in trading, which was the first time that they've had to do that since earlier in that week. And point-wise, it was the largest sell-off in the history of the Dow Jones Industrial Average at 2,353 points. And uh, there was the announcement that, quote, the Fed would pump $1.5 trillion into the financial markets, and we'll get more into that, or at least we would. But then uh, March 13th, uh, this last Friday, the stocks jumped 9.36%, and uh, the crisis is over. So uh, this has been Grub Stakers. I'm Andy Palmer. <laughs> no, unfortunately, it didn't end there, and we're still living it. But We're, we're still know. living it. Yeah, so that's... That's the that's the stock market crisis up to that point. Um, between the twelfth of February, when there was the high of twenty nine thousand five hundred sixty nine, and the low of the twelfth of March, which was twenty one thousand one hundred fifty four, uh, the Dow dropped twenty eight point five percent. So nearly one third of the value in the Dow uh, was lost over that time. So. Before we go into, I, I guess, what more or less happened, I guess uh, we should probably define some basic terms uh, as to 
uh, maybe like uh, kind of some of the terms that are flying around for what is going on with the stock market. So like the term correction, um, that that word's been thrown around a lot. Uh, It's not being thrown a lot. It's not being thrown around as much now because uh, we just kind of blew right past it. But a uh, correction is when a um, uh, it's a stock market term for when like a benchmark index like the S&P 500 or the Dow Jones falls about 10 percent or more. And uh, so we we blew it's like 10 to 20 percent, I think, is the kind of handle. Yeah. Uh, on average, there's a market correction, a fall of 10% or more every uh, three or so years. Every three or so years. And But now we've gone beyond that, and we're in what's called a bear market, which you've probably heard before, maybe, where that's 20% or more decline from the past pre- peak. And that's essentially, it, it doesn't mean there's a recession, it doesn't mean there's a financial crisis necessarily, it's often linked with those things, mm-hmm. but you can have one in isolation. And currently we have one and they tend to last about on average about 10 or 11 months. Right. Right. So that was so like, we're looking at like a potential bottoming out sometime around end of August, early September. Potential, if we, yeah. use, if we just stuck to that norm, which again, there's a lot of volatility and you don't know these things for sure. Yes. So the, the, the definition of a recession then is, uh, Oh yeah. Bear market, 20% or more, uh, recession is, uh, when, Inflation-adjusted GDP declines for two quarters or more. Uh, the um, National Bureau of Economics Research defines it as a, a recession is a significant decline in economic activity spread across the economy lasting more than a few months, normally visible in real GDP, real income, unemployment, industrial production, and wholesale retail sales. A recession begins just after the economy reaches a peak of activity and ends as the economy reaches its trough. And uh, on average, recessions occur uh, every seven to nine years, which is part of the reason uh, everyone's kind of on pins and needles about one occurring now because uh, we are well overdue for it. We've had 11 years of sustained growth. And uh, that's part of the reason for the mass sell-off is that people are like, well, there's a recession right around the corner because no one really understands why there's been 11 months or 11 years of sustained growth like it's kind of this big gray area for everyone right now yeah definitely and i think i think you're right to like make to make all these distinctions clear because sometimes it can get kind of muddled when people talk about oh there's a recession risk there's a risk of financial crisis there's a risk of a bear market like these are all distinct things that um i think especially like as leftist organizers um you should definitely keep a clear sort of head about what could be happening, what's on the horizon. So like right now we have a bear market, the 20% decline or more. Um, With the coronavirus, you have uh, large sectors of the global economy are essentially shutting down. And that's going to eventually start hampering trade and freight, shipping statistics. Mm -hmm. Um, Basically like my... My high-level view, I guess, of the this current mess we're in pretty much lines up with what Andy just detailed with the market data. But, like, I see it as the coronavirus is causing, like, large sectors of the global economy to be shut down in order to stop the spread of the virus. Right. Wall, Wall Street and other powerful financial institutions are reading this news. They're digesting the statistics and initiating sell-offs on the stock market as a result of that. 
And one secondary response to this that we'll get into shortly um, is these investors want to get in to safer government securities. They want to get out of stock market, out of corporate bonds, and back into safe government securities, such as um, short-term treasury bills or like overnight funding things to get some liquidity. And they go to the Federal Reserve to do these things. And they end up like doing things like collateralizing some of their treasury securities to get some like short-term liquidity for this purpose. You know, the worst thing about the stock market crashing in the way it has during this coronavirus is Andy's winning the best brokers game. And it's like, how come <laughs> when the world is crumbling, Andy wins? I took all of my money out of, uh, I wasn't doing great with stocks and the the best brokers game, it turned out, uh, trades in euros. So I just pulled all of my money out of euros and put it into dollars because I figured Brexit would crash the euro, which hasn't necessarily happened, but it did stem the bleeding. And now that the stock market's crashed, uh, I suddenly have more money than everyone else just because I I don't have my game invested in any stocks. It's true. Well, in the previous financial crisis, uh, like one of the best performing assets was the U.S. dollar. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if everything goes to hell, just buy treasuries and dollars. So yeah, if you are trying to hedge on the possibility of the apocalypse... Like even gold is down. Yep. Yeah, it, it seems just much much smarter to just buy U.S. dollars and U.S. Treasuries if you think the the shit is hitting the fan. You heard it here first. Start stuffing your mattress. Hoard <laughs> dollars. That's, Physical that, cash. That's how we're gonna get out of this. Is just if you start hoarding dollars in your mattress, stuff your pillows. Uh, just put your life savings and in, in all of your clothes. You know, watch people get coronavirus from cash. <laughs> Um, in their mattress. <laughs> so uh, uh, one other distinction that we should make, because Stephen and I were talking about this a bit, is how it's not yet clear that we're in a uh, financial crisis. And so the, the definition of a, um, a financial crisis, this is from uh, the IMF, is uh, a financial crisis is often an amalgam of events, including substantial changes in credit volume and asset prices, severe disruptions in financial intermediation, notably the supply of external financing, large-scale balance sheet problems, and the need for large-scale government support. Uh, While these events can be driven by a variety of factors, financial crises often are preceded by asset and credit booms that then turn into busts. So could you explain then, uh, because again, I'm a moron, how this is not necessarily a financial crisis yet? Well, so we have a down. We're we're in a bear market in the stock market. That's that's obvious. Um, you can have bear markets that don't necessarily include a financial crisis in like the classic definition. So, like if um, Don Cheadle is trying to short jeans, um, and uh, the guy from Girls is is in on it, um, and he's secretly gay, and the, also the guy from How Did This Get Made podcast <laughs> is involved, um, that might be. And of course, Huey Lewis in the news is is tearing up the charts. That might be one of those examples. <laughs> it's a little bit like that. Like, like okay, maybe it's not like that at all. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but like, uh, I mean, a classic sort of colloquial definition, anyway, of a financial crisis is well, there's a debt bubble somewhere that has popped. Right. And if you like scour, if you scour data on household, corporate, and corporate sector debt, like. There are some areas of corporate debt which are obviously cause for concern in that they're elevated, 
So like un- unsecured credit lines for corporations that they use to buy up uh, their own stock, like a stock buyback. That's hmm. fueled. It's fueled by credit. That's happening, and that's obviously cause for concern. But then at the same time, there's so much corporate cash available. So like you have to look at their. You can't look at the level of corporate debt in isolation and and conclude, oh, that's a debt bubble. You have to look at how well that they can pay it back. And currently, like the G, like the Dow Jones, those thirty companies that comprise the Dow Jones Industrial Average, mm-hmm. they have substantial cash reserves still. Like I was just looking at Boeing, and they've obviously been through a lot of bullshit with like the you know the failed Max. Yeah. Uh, the plane that doesn't work. Actually, speaking Tra- of uh, uh, travel, is obviously down because of the coronavirus. Yet still, they have substantial cash available to make their debt payments. Okay, so they're they're not at risk of default for the time being, at least. Right. So, like, when you're talking about a financial crisis versus a bear market, it's that's good to keep in mind that like uh, we have to be realistic about this. Like, I think leftists have this thing where like they'll They'll, every single time the S&P 500 drops more than about 3%, they just claim it's, though, this is it. This is the this is the end times, right, folks. This is the big one. Yeah, when in fact that volatility is quite normal. And so, but if you do it every single time, eventually you'll be right. And so they have this sort of like, the, bro- the broken clock is right twice a day thing, basically. So like there's a lot of volatility right now. And more importantly, there's a public health crisis. Yeah, in large, like the, I think what's really going to reflect back on our economy and the stock market even more is that we'll just continually be getting news about, oh, look, this trade statistic is much lower because of the coronavirus. Oh, look, there's another sell-off on the market because these Wall Street people see all the data that we do, sometimes even more. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they're digesting it just like anyone does, and making decisions for their clients like oh you should sell this and get into u.s treasury debt instead for the time being and like yes that's rational so what could be uh happening you're saying is that like you know we'll take a hit um for the next few months in the markets uh but if the coronavirus isn't as bad as everyone is is saying it is they might recover because um, there isn't the bubbles haven't popped yet. I think what the the big risk that could like still potentially not rule out a financial crisis occurring later on, like maybe next year, is if this coronavirus really does bring us into recession, and like we just have no answer as far as the vaccine for a while more. Like I mean, I if you have like eighteen months for a vaccine. Yeah, I mean that's that's I I heard that was like the average time it takes to develop one. So like if that's true or if it's even longer um Yeah, I mean if what China if what happened in China has to happen here pretty much regardless production is going to fall, unemployment will rise. These these headline once the headline indicators that everybody watches, including the mainstream media and everything, once those begin to deteriorate then yeah, you could see an additional pullback that does that does uh, cut into these companies' sales, like these sales receipts that really drive everything, right. including eventually being able to make good on your debt payments. Then you would see a financial crisis. 
but at the moment, um, it's just, it's not, it's certainly plausible, but it's not like a big risk. So then I guess one thing to consider is, would you say that like compared to our current position is potentially maybe where we were at this time of year in 2008? I feel like this, like we're sort of in like maybe Q3 of like 2007 right now or so. Okay. So like there are some inklings of problems in the corporate debt markets. Uh Uh-huh. Like people are, too many people are getting rather cheap loans from banks to go and do stock buybacks and stuff like that. And on the household side, um, a lot of like non-home, some of the non-home related consumer debt markets are getting a little bit strained. Like uh, auto lending had like a spike in defaults. Really? Like for, for cars. Yeah. Oh, around like this time, around like Q3 2007? Oh, I'm talking about right now. Oh, right now. Okay. Yeah. Aren't all those car loans, a whole bunch of car loans are securitized? Because that's what I'm always watching for is I know corporate debts, a lot of it's securitized. And I know auto loans are now mostly securitized. So it's just like once you start seeing those defaults, you have to imagine there'll be cascading effects. Yeah. So like all of that needs to be weighed against sort of like what's the overall level of indebtedness for households in or switching the households now. Like and one measure I look at to keep track of that is called the household debt financial obligations ratio, which um, it's from it's a statistic that's kept by the Federal Reserve. And if you go on the Federal Reserve Economic Database, you can find it there. And it's like, okay, it's ticked up like um, a bit, but it's still like substantially down from where you would see in like 2008, since like mortgages really haven't come back for most of most Americans yet. And that's a big source of what would be an obligation to repay. However, other things like student debt and auto loans have ticked up. So it's sort of like a moderate like elevation right now. Right. And then one thing I'm wondering, in addition to that, too, is like in 2008, you know, before the while the mortgage crisis was happening, the kind of uh, the wider economy outside of, I guess, maybe the American Southwest, where it was central, where where it all kicked off, like the wider economy was kind of chugging along like normal up until the um, the bubble popped and then it just kind of cascaded across the whole country and then the world. And what I'm wondering is if like, I- instead of maybe the, that crisis leading uh, into unemployment, if it might work the other way around this time where, you know, with all of the, uh, with all the businesses shutting down, you know, we're already seeing, uh, people are saying they're getting laid off, you know, because suddenly America's consumer economy is getting absolutely gutted. And so what what I'm wondering then is if then that might actually have, instead of it being um, kicked off by the financial crisis, if instead of financial crisis uh, will happen much, much sooner because of all of these other um uh, factors with, with unemployment and, uh, you know, coming and, you know, everything's slowing down the economy and the other, on the other side of the equation. 
Yeah, I mean, you definitely don't need a financial crisis in order to enter a recession. Right. So, like in this case, I think I kind of I'm I'm I kind of agree with you that, like to me, the biggest risk in all of this is continue just like most of the economy just gets shut down. Right. So there's no activity. There's no debt, but there's also no activity. Right. So you start seeing falls in GDP and unemployment and other things that like everyone cares about. Right. Right. And like that can cause further volatility in the stock markets that you know causes sell-offs and stuff and like um there's no need necessarily for there to be a big debt bubble looming although one could still be yeah that's 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 another thing that i think about a lot is that um like a lot of the bubbles like they're bubbles because no one no one sees them um or at least no one sees the danger and where they're lurking or else there would be a lot of shorts and they would they wouldn't form it or they wouldn't grow as big Mm-hmm. Um, like in order for there to be a bubble, uh, it, it has to, it, it has to be invisible in a way. Um, at least for, for the, for the most part. That's uh, true. Yeah. And so, you know, with the, the massive growth of the, um, of the stock market, like it, it was just apparently two years ago that the Dow crossed the 20,000 threshold that we're uh, coming right back to. And, and so like, I don't know what, what would cause a bubble, but it looks like there's a massive bubble there that maybe we just don't know about yet. I think like, so the stock market, to me, it seems like the stock market bubble is, is popping. Some of that was brought up by debt, but a lot of that wasn't. And it was just, it was funded out of present funds like to buy that stock. Right. And, um, I mean, obviously, if it's on the one hand, you have a massive stock stock gain. Um, that's cat. That's substantial amount more cash in the hands of those big blue chip companies mm-hmm. to um, continue their operations, even if there was a downturn or something. So I guess I would say that like it's good to keep this like distinction between bear market, financial crisis, and recession in mind. And it's like these are things that often happen in concert, but they needn't do so. I guess if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. So, um, then I guess with the the time we have left, we could probably get to the meat of what we want to talk about here, which is, um, as this all uh, came crashing down, uh, everyone's been talking about this Federal Reserve uh, $1.5 trillion uh, injection. And you, you told me, uh, yesterday that you really don't like the word injection, um, or that they're pumping 1.5 trillion into it. And, uh, I will say that I, uh, do not understand the distinction very well. And so, uh, but you do. And so I was wondering what, what's, what, what's really going on here? Yeah. I mean, I was looking through Twitter from those couple days and I saw, um, I mean, admittedly, it's it's a pretty confusing topic, but I was just seeing dozens of takes that were kind of wrong in like a slightly different way. Right, right. And um, but the a lot of them could be if I had to group a bunch of them together, it would be like, oh my god, look, the government's just handing one point five trillion to the finance sector, um, and I'll just start with like what's I guess what is definitely not the case, and that's obviously one of them. So. What was actually happening with this is, and this is sort of the short version, um, was swapping out one type of government IOU 
for another type of government IOU doesn't make a bailout. It isn't a bailout. It's unfair, but it's not what's happening. So instead, everyone is looking at what was handed to the private sector in this case, $1.5 trillion in liquidity, like settlement balances, stuff like that in commercial banking system, but they aren't looking at what was taken away. And so this is, I mean, they're not just handing it out. They're getting short-term liquidity in exchange for collateralizing things like U.S. treasuries, like as part of a loan. So it's better to think of this as a loan so United rather, States than, is, rather than him handing cash. So the United States is loaning out $1.5 trillion. A lot of it, yeah. Okay. Some of it is a straight swap, and then some of it is a loan. So how does how does the swap work? They're buying. They're, is it that they're um, maybe more or less uh, refinancing old loans with lower interest rates? It's a little like that. So the slightly longer version of what happened, which I think covers this, um, I've just been thinking of this over the couple of days when I hear these takes. But um, basically, when the Fed conducts what are called open market operations, and this is something that happens almost every day. Um, one, one tactic they use is swapping out what are called bank settlement balances for another type of government security called treasuries. And it's nothing like normal fiscal spending or a tax cut in the sense that when, you, when the government authorizes spending, it tells the Federal Reserve to credit commercial bank accounts so many dollars and and they're not they're not purchasing some other security this is just this is payment for a service so like if you if the government wants to do medicare for all it will credit the bank accounts of you know hospitals doctors everyone that needs to do the work to do medicare for all that's not giving them a loan or something that's just spending and with a tax cut similarly um they just don't receive as much tax revenue from like a, a designated um, tax program account for the treasury. So like those things, if you think of the economy as split up between the government sector and the private sector, the, the non-government sector in a simplified model, um, you can say that with spending in a tax cut, um, the non-governments, uh, their books have a net increase in financial assets. Whereas with what happened just the other day, they were either exchanging one security for another for liquidity, or they were collateralizing a government security for some liquidity. So there was no net change in the financial assets. They got a loan, which is certainly something that's valuable, but they weren't just being handed money. If that makes sense. I, I think so, yeah. So like the net the net change was moot, but they got they got easier access to cash. Perhaps you can just run through this again, like because these are what are called overnight repo agreements, overnight repurchase agreements. Which my understanding, and please correct me if I'm wrong here, is that uh, it's like a short term loan that functions by. Uh, one party giving the other party an asset and then buying it back the next day at a higher price, and then the spread between the original and the next price is the loan. So I guess I was just confused as to whether or not 
the tre- the Fed was purchasing treasuries from the banks, or if it was giving the banks treasuries and then buying those treasuries back the next day. Just, I guess, how this operation works, because I understand it as a short-term loan. I just don't understand the actual mechanisms of it. Yeah, so what they were doing, this is where their collateral, like uh, companies, institutions, and households will be offering up um, their government securities as collateral for a loan, basically. So they're accessing cash by uh, collateralizing these securities. And if that makes sense, does it? Yeah, but I mean, is, is it just treasuries or are they taking other securities too? No, these are only um, government securities. So they'll be like okay. uh, one-year treasuries and stuff like that. Um, now, in this, the size of what happened the other day is what is really different, but the mechanism is exactly the same. So in one on one hand, it's sort of normal. On the other hand, it's not. And like, but the reason that it was so large is not like because the government is like, oh shit, we got a financial crisis on our hands. But more so, it's just purely a response to what investors are looking for to when they get out of the stock market. So then it's, would that mean then that it's probably not going to have much relief for the stocks at the moment? Yeah, I mean, this is literally people getting out of the stock market into something safer. So, like, they want liquidity to maybe to, you know, to meet some of their operating expenses or they uh, are just they're temporarily waiting for conditions to prove and improve in the Dow Jones and then go back. Okay. So it's more of like it's a it's more of a response to the volatility in the stock market rather than like... um causing some bubbling up of some other asset so it's not it's it's not really relief to like people's 401ks unless the people investing those 401ks were like okay so now i guess we'll buy some uh treasury securities yeah i mean these are very safe assets and as as you probably guess they don't earn very much right as a result of that that low risk right right so um, it's can be basically just assumed as a flight to safety. Hmm. And, but to get back to like the actual mechanics of what's going on here. Uh, so like these collateralized short-term loans, typically they're just done overnight, but this time they're also extended to like one month and three month securities, like maturities where you like, you, you get the liquidity, you do whatever you do with it. And then you pay it back with interest, a small amount after one and three months. And so that's slightly different, but it's, again, it's the exact same funding mechanism. Like the Federal Reserve is just keystroking in money and giving it to these people. And then they give all of it back in plus a little bit more. Right. They pay so it like, back with interest. Yeah. Right. And you said and, there's kind of the analogy here to like the bailout the banks where people said, oh, well, uh, you know, when they bailed out the banks, the banks paid all the money back. So the United States didn't actually lose money. <laughs> Yeah, that's just fallacious reasoning for a couple of different reasons. So like uh, that, yeah, back in, in like the aftermath of like once people, people were looking at QE, quality, quantitative easing, and saying like, wow, this is really unfair. That was a general reaction. And it's the right one because it was only given to these elite financial institutions 
and the bondholder clash, etc. But then other other people online and the bankers themselves were being like, well, it was just a loan. I mean, we paid it back, so it's fair. And like, well, yeah, okay. The I'm I'm kind of comparing what's going on now, some of the discourse with that, because in both cases there there's like this group of liberals mostly that is like, you see, it was fair because it's a loan because you see. The, the fact that there's no change in net assets in the private sector means that, like, actually, this was just, like, a benign emergency measure. And, like, um, they're not getting any richer. Like, the their net worth isn't increasing simply because they did this. And, like, which is true. But the fact that households and mainstream don't have, Main Street don't have access to this credit facility is what's unfair. So, if it... If it were extended to, um, say, regular people, would that mean just it would be very easy for, uh, like, someone like us, or so, like, let's say Grub Stakers LLC, to just take out a low interest loan from the Fed? <laughs> I would love for that to be true. So, like, if you have, that would be great if just average people could take out a loan at Federal Reserve rates for right, right. their. Um, for their car or something right? rather than having to go through the commercial system. I, I think that's the, the nut of it where, you know, like you were saying, Steve, uh, you see a lot of people on Twitter with the, the globe emojis or whatever getting mad at people for saying, oh, if the Fed has, you know, 1.5 trillion, why don't they have, you know, money for uh, student loans or health care or whatever, uh, whatever have you. And it's like, yeah, so some people may be, uh, I guess, misunderstand and think the Fed is directly giving the cash to these banks instead of um, giving uh, short-term loans. But uh, from that, you know, misunderstanding, you miss the broader point, which is, yeah, the Fed, if they wanted to, could buy, you know, all $1.5 trillion of student debt and refinance it at the same discount window rate the banks get, you know, 1.5 or 2% interest. Uh, the Fed could do a lot of things. The Fed could buy up, you know, municipal bonds would be another great idea in this crisis. Just say we will buy all the municipal bonds at 0% interest as long as every state and local government spends a bunch of money controlling the pandemic. There's a lot of things they could do that they don't do. Um, and I guess one other point I wanted to make was in the financial crisis, you saw the Fed buy up at least $1.25 tri- uh, $1. of uh, mortgage-backed securities which, as everybody who's watched The Big Short knows, these were just full of totally fraudulent loans. The Fed bought up, you know, over a trillion dollars worth of mortgages. They didn't help anybody renegotiate their principal or stay in the loan or stay in their home. It was just to give cash to Wall Street, and then Wall Street could kick everybody out on the street, take the homes back and rent them as single families or resell them or whatever. So, you know, it's it's not unfair when people call this stuff a bailout, it, 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 but they should understand the mechanism of how the bailout works, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah, and like, I, I really don't, I mean, some people might think this is nitpicking and like it's a distinction without a difference or something. But to me, it really does make a difference that you get the details right. Because when you do that, it's easier to see like this massive injustice of like this, this proves that whenever they ask for a pay for it's bullshit Mm -hmm. because there was they the fed just literally keystroked in 1.5 trillion to give liquidity 
And yes, they got it back in plus plus interest, but that's not the point. The point is that they can just do this whenever they want. And there's all sorts of things that the Fed, as the fiscal agent of the U.S. government, could be told to do on behalf of working people. Right, right. And so the the easy money just isn't available to us. Yeah. It's only like if if you if you're on your ass, if you're, you know, homeless um, because of uh, just for any reason, like you can't get a a 2 percent loan to, you know, help you um, get an apartment, uh, get get things in order so that you can then like, you know, be able to uh, kind of get your life back together. Like that kind of lifeline is not available to you. If, if you're in deep poverty in America, but if you're a a company that, you know, screwed a bunch of people over and fell out on your ass, that is available to you. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not about it. Like we could be bailing, we could have bailed out Detroit and they wouldn't have had to have like this authoritarian uh, emergency financial manager like they did in the crisis. We could do reparations. Yes, we yeah. could. Yeah, I mean, you can all start talking about all sorts of cool things, like a UBI or something, or expanding Social Security. And, uh, well, Congress could. That's another thing to keep in mind, is that, yeah, the Fed could do all this stuff, but they can't do it just unilaterally. It has to be directed by the Congress in these, like, discrete cases that aren't in um, open market operations like like this was. But like the, I mean, the Fed works for Congress ultimately, right? Yeah, but like uh, in the 2008 crisis, I believe buying up mortgage-backed securities was just uh, Ben Bernanke's executive decision. I mean, I, I could be wrong about that, but somebody made the point online that uh, Powell should just start buying up municipal bonds and dare Congress to tell him not to, because you know they would be the ones saying, "Hey, you can't." help people in the pandemic yeah like like to me that to me that falls within the purview of quantitative easing buying up munis versus buying up corporate debt or um mortgage-backed securities like certainly and like i I saw a few legal legal scholars on twitter that said like yeah no that's fine and like during a during a hearing with powell uh what's your name from the squad um the Massachusetts one. Elizabeth Warren. <laughs> no. <laughs> the one who supports Elizabeth Warren. You know what I'm talking Ayanna about? Presley. Yeah, Ayanna Presley, I think it was, was questioning the chair, uh, Fed Chairman Powell and is like, why don't you just use this to buy up the municipal debt of struggling cities and towns so that they like you know can run their school systems better and stuff? And he's like, oh, he's like really frumpy and like said that wouldn't be proper or something like he he never said it wasn't allowed but he's just like that, that would like it be a break in decorum and i'm like come on man you're like you're willing to keystroke in 1.5 trillion for liquidity for um like hedge funds and stuff but not cities like really so that's like i mean like i guess all of this to get to get more back on track is like you should there's a, there's injustice here, and it's magnified when you actually follow the details. Yeah, and like, I mean, there's a couple other points I wanted to, to get to. Like, there's, a, I think, Joe uh, Weisenthal, uh, some Bloomberg guy on, on Twitter, 
was saying because of all these posts that we've been talking about, he was despairing. Uh, I'm going to paraphrase him. He said something to the effect of, it seems like a lot of leftists are uh, uncomfortable with the very idea of a lender of last resort. And that's scary to me. And it's like, personally, I have no problem with the idea of a lender of last resort. What I have a problem with is the fact that in the United States, the uh, six major racketeering organizations that refer to themselves as banks, uh, J.P. Morgan, um, Ch- uh, J.P. Morgan Chase, Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, Bank of America, Citigroup, um, these are organizations that uh, Wells Fargo that, you know, settled uh, for billions of dollars for, you know, illegally foreclosing on people, stealing homes with fake paperwork. Of course, Wells Fargo had their fake account settlements. There have been, you know, a thousand different criminal cases against these organizations. And yet these six are the ones that are getting this, you know, lender of last resort status from the Federal Reserve. So I don't have a problem with the lender of last resort. I just have a problem with the fact that it's like these six major, too-big-to-fail, literal criminal organizations are the ones that benefit from the lender of last resort and nobody else. I guess the other thing I I wanted to just ask you, Steve, because I might have misunderstood this online, I was making the point that uh, essentially uh, people getting mad at people saying this is free money from the Fed, well, I might have confused the discount window with, with the repo program, where I made the point that these banks get money from the Fed at a lower interest rate than anybody could get on the open market, and then they in turn lend it back out at a higher interest rate, collecting free money on the spread between those two interest rates. So I said, oh yeah, this is a huge difference between free money from the Fed. I guess I was just wondering, is that a misunderstanding of what the Fed is doing here? Well, commercial banks and the Fed also, who is the bank for the banks, they when they lend, they literally just spend into existence a deposit. So they create a deposit and then that's supplied for the borrower and they simultaneously create an asset and liability of the same size as the deposit. And that's basically how they make money. They make money by literally making money. (laughs) So if you were to to say it in, um, in one sentence that ends with an onomatopoeia and starts with the money machine how would you phrase it (laughs) money machine go burr (laughs) that's like i like how that phrase like that phrase is simultaneously the small brain take and also the galaxy (laughs) brain take i like that symmetry but it's really true so like uh uh james James Galbraith, like a really famous economist, said one time, quote, I'm, well, I'm paraphrasing, but he's like, the process by which banks make loans is so simple it repels the mind. Because hmm. you, you envision this process of like the fractional reserve story where like, well, they can only lend out 10% of their deposits or whatever. They're like, actually, no. So when, once they're approved for credit, um, they just create a deposit out of nothing. And then they also create a liability of the person trying to, like, uh, that they need to repay the money, the deposit money that they use to go buy something, say a house, over a certain period of time so that it covers all of the principal and also the interest. And, like, that's what's being securitized, basically, is the agreement to repay all of that. And the bank has a, a simultaneous agreement where it says, I promise to give you the mortgage. And so those two things cancel out, but the person is also paying back interest. 
And so that's like, uh, I think people are confusing that process with banks going to the Fed to get this $1.5 trillion, which was basically using bank capital to secure so collateralizing some bank capital in order to gain extra liquidity to deal with settling payments better can you rephrase that for dumb guys which part uh all of it the collateral starting with collateralized and ending with liquidity <laughs> yeah when i well, when i say collateralized i'm saying they're offering up an asset that is just going to be at the fed and like in case they default on the loan. Mm-hmm. The Fed would get to keep this security. Okay. So that's what collateralize is. Okay. And then liquidity is an infusion of cash as part, like the proceeds of a loan. Right. Okay. So basically the bank's saying, so uh, the bank is money like, from- yeah, like, so on the one hand, bank banks make their money by literally creating money, like these deposits little by little that people pay an interest. That's one side of their business. And then the interest that they receive goes into the capital base of the bank. And banks don't just want to have a bunch of dollars sitting around that aren't earning much interest. They would like to invest it in something. So they often invest in things like treasury securities. Mortgage-backed securities. And yeah, also back in the day, mortgage-backed securities. And, and so, so then yeah. the um, the collateralization means that if the bank really fucks up, the government owns them. Well, it just means if they don't repay that, uh, if they don't repay the short term loan, then they would just keep the security. And the Fed doesn't really want to do that, though. It would like to just um, much more much more likely is that the loan would just get rolled over into yet another agreement mm. with the bank with lower interest rates. Uh, maybe, possibly. It's like the Fed is not in the business of just holding treasury securities usually. What it wants to do is supply liquidity to the system when it needs it. But so I guess when the Fed says that they're going to do 1.5 trillion of repo agreements, does that mean that the banks in turn have to put up 1.5 trillion of treasuries or other securities? I mean, is it a one-to-one thing or there's probably a slight difference there? Um, it's for those agreements, it's usually they want 100% collateralized value for the short term agreements. So like they give them a treasury worth like a a bundle of treasuries worth like a million and then they get a million worth of cash. And then later on they pay, they pay it back plus interest. And then I guess the loan is just the difference between the value of a dollar today and a dollar tomorrow. I would assume. Yeah, essentially. I, I think the the fault is our complex financial system, which has created an episode where Yogi hasn't said one word for an hour. <laughs> Come on, guys. Let's get into the real shit, all right? Does, does it like the machine go birthing, small brain, big brain thing, Trump... Trump firing the CDC in 2018. Is that premeditated? Does he know coronavirus is coming two years later? Is he doing this on purpose? Let me contextualize while we're doing this. So like m- money machine go Berber. Like we're explaining the Berber money machine right now. We're explaining how it works. How, how, how it goes Burr. Yeah. And so like I'm, I'm, I was so pleasantly surprised when I saw that meme going around <laughs> because it's like, some people will say it's a small brain take, but actually it's like the transcendental galaxy brain take. Like at the same time. 
I mean that that does seem to be the 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 shorthand for modern monetary theory. Yeah, I mean honestly, you're you're much closer to the truth if you're at the money machine go burber meme stage. Now, on on Yogi's point about uh, Trump firing the CDC, uh, my take on that is that he he was probably just doing the dumb Republican thing of cutting every uh, possible uh, aspect of government so that they can lower uh, taxes for the ultra wealthy. Uh, at the same time, uh, with the trade war going on, I would not be surprised if Trump got caught on a hot mic saying that they told me that China thing would never make it over here. I'm telling you, I heard a theory that it's it's Russia and they don't want China and Siberia. And so what they did is Putin wants to be prime minister to 2036. So global pandemic. And no one, no one touches Putin when it comes to him wanting to be an oligarch for another fucking sixteen years. No, here's here's the thing on Putin though is I think I think this Putin stuff it's all paranoia. It's it's uh, you know it's it's blown out of proportion. The guy who's really pulling the strings is Yeltsin. He's still alive. He's working behind the scenes. He was never a drunk. He's going to live uh, until he's a hundred and thirty. Uh, and Putin's just uh, just a puppet of Yeltsin. And I think. I think when people uh, talk about Putin on MSNBC, they're really missing the bigger part of the story, which is that uh, Yeltsin, who works for the KGB because the Soviet Union uh, never really ended, is uh, the mastermind behind everything that's happening in Russia and by extension America. I read that the only uh, coronavirus cases in Russia were people that went to Italy. It turns out crocodile drugs cure the uh, the coronavirus. <laughs> the... Uh just vodka and just really dangerous uh, uh, substances. Oh, but I did want to say on that CDC thing, the articles about it say that it was John Bolton at the National Security Council who killed the uh, CDC pandemic unit. So the thing is, you have these guys like David Frum saying uh, on Twitter something to the effect of, you know, if Marco Rubio or Jeb Bush was in there, this wouldn't be happening. Trump is an abnormal Republican president. Well, Trump is like clearly not a guy who understands the deep state bureaucracy. It was John Bolton who came in and killed the CDC pan <clears throat> and killed the CDC pandemic unit. So, I mean, this stuff just drives me crazy where it's like you have the Republicans in the Senate saying that we're going to kill, you know, sick leave for 80% of US workers in the middle of a pandemic and then the Senate goes on vacation. They're not even going to pass that bill till Monday or Tuesday. Uh in the middle of a crisis. And, you know, it just drives me nuts how much of it is Trump is just a standard Republican president and doesn't really know what's going on. And the actual operators are just doing what any effing Republican president would do in this situation. Yeah, I mean, these these decisions like like these at like the buyer leaders on who's going to run the response and like, you know, what shit is going to get shut down is like honestly where the real crisis that like I think people are like sort of distracted by on one level by the Fed thing, in that they're looking for the crisis there, but like it's really these decisions about like should we shut down like the New York City school system or not, right? And yeah. like that lack of response is like where the re- real economic carnage could be wrought. Yeah, like one of the things that I'm sure we're going to start hearing ad nauseum uh, starting. Uh, I don't know, yesterday is that, you know, this isn't what would happen if Hillary was in charge. But if you want to see what would happen if uh, if a Democrat was in charge, just look at 
at New York State where Andrew Cuomo is the, the most institutional Democrat of institutional Democrats, and he's not doing shit. Like, he he should be, you know, shutting down everything to his ability, and he's just kind of treading water. And de Blasio, too. And it it's... If, if like, let's say Hillary won, e- even if she did take the responsible actions that I'm sure all the near attendants of the world are imagining that she would take in their uh, Earth 2 fantasy, the, the fundamental reality is that America, because it has a privatized health system, it cannot respond to this in any way more sophisticated than Trump bringing, you know, Jim from Walgreens up to the podium to say, Hey, discount on hand sanitizer. Like the, the, the system isn't built to, to handle uh coronavirus unless it can make a profit off of it. That's just the fundamentals of the American system. And so, uh, of the, the idea that, you know, Trump is Trump's response is uh, some exception from the norm is absolute nonsense, even when you're comparing him to a standard Democrat. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I think they might have done like some of the basics, like keep the pandemic unit around. But ultimately, when you have a privatized healthcare system, people are going to skip out on the doctor and they're going to skip out on tests. You know, if even if the test's free, if the treatment's not free, why would I go to the get the test? It's just going to tell me I need a five thousand dollar hospital bill. I'm not going to do that. It's a waste of my time. I don't have five thousand dollars. So ultimately, yeah, this is the perfect exposure of the problem in our uh, privatized healthcare system. Plus, you know, the uh, all of the the collapse of um, of the trade system, everything there, like that that would have happened under Hillary as well. I mean, she wanted to keep the this same machine um, that relies on exploitation in China. She wanted to keep that whirring, and she wanted to like kick it into high gear too. I mean, it, it would have been pretty much the the same situation going into this do you guys see that uh, cuomo is making prisoners make hand sanitizer a hundred prisoners <laughs> are gonna make a hundred thousand gallons of this shit and it's like you can't give these motherfuckers heat when it's fucking freezing outside now you want them to make hand sanitizers you piece of shit yeah i saw that i think as long as it's not his um his uh, members of his family uh, emphasis on family being forced to make the hand sanitizer. Uh, he doesn't have any moral qualms about prison labor. And just like one more thing on this Clinton point, because yes, permanent normalized trade relations with China was signed by Bill Clinton. So it's like you have a situation today where uh, off the top of my head, it's something like 90 to 95 percent of antibiotics are made in China. So you have a pandemic there And, you know, we have all these shortages of, like, masks, um, you know, uh, as we just mentioned, hand sanitizer, um, gloves, rubber gloves. You just have no capacity to make those in the United States. And suddenly you have a global pandemic. It's like you created the conditions where we have a pandemic and cannot respond to it domestically because we outsourced our entire capacity for this. This virus is really laying bare just how what what an utterly global system we have. And like how concentrated our production and supply chain is has become due to these international trade agreements. Like just from a risk management standpoint, like it, it you know it shows we have to think globally, and you know that we should have more of a diversified supply chain in other countries besides China, you know Malaysia, Taiwan, and even with like um, 
I mean, you could say that, you know, antibiotics, they're now help with a virus, but, uh, what's of course going to break down is that like, once you're, once the infection starts really like getting into people's systems, there's going to be a bunch of concurrent, um, uh, a bunch of concurrent infections that are going to come out that, uh, if you don't have antibiotics, you can't treat that. And so that's going to kill way more people. Plus, you know, anything that you, uh, needed to treat with antibiotics before, uh, the, the pandemic, you know, you're not going to be able to treat that. Um, it's, it's all, it's, it's, uh, let's see if I could find the perfect way to phrase, uh, this situation. I do just want to, I want to say, because uh, we didn't really mention it, but uh, we, we talked about how the stock market rallied on uh, Friday the 13th. Uh, and it was, of course, as many people know, Donald Trump called a press conference with the F- with the CEOs of Walmart, CVS, Target, Walgreens. And it was just, it was called right until the market closed. They just kept talking until the market closed. They had all these CEOs there and they just said the word public private partnership again and again. So they were just trying to hypnotize the market into believing, which they very, uh, it very much might be true, that they were just going to dump billions of federal dollars into Walmart, CVS, Target, Walgreens. Because that's what's going to happen with a public-private partnership is these private entities are just going to get billions of dollars in federal money. And that's what caused a stock market rally, which seemed to be the entire point of this, uh, this little uh, press conference because testing is still not available here. But um, it, it is just so so funny how PR obsessed this administration. Oh yeah, right is. after that, uh, just uh, right after the the market closed, Trump tweeted in all caps like "biggest gain in Dow Jones history," mm. like it, the day immediately after the biggest loss in Dow Jones history, and it didn't even recoup the loss of the day before. Yeah, wow. I haven't seen statistics on it, but I would think like that might be the largest. A uh, change in price in two days, probably on the market. Well, I, I mean, I do, I do know because that the like one day is the greatest drop percentage wise, not percentage wise, but point wise. Yeah, I thought it was also percentage. No, no, percentage was Black Monday. Was could be Black? No, no, no. I no, I was saying since Black Monday. Oh, since Black Monday, yeah, it was the greatest percentage drop on Thursday. I think it was since Black Monday, and then. The very next day, it was the greatest gain since uh, 2008. So, like, I think no one's actually said that before. I think that's, like, the largest uh, just, like, outright price change in two days. Yeah. It's, like, crazy volatility. I mean, it it's definitely, like, a 10% jump in the Dow Jones does not mean things are going well. Like, if it was just, like, you know, kind of steadily rising and then suddenly it jumped by 10%, that is exactly as alarming as if it drops by 20%. And with that, those grub stickers, I'm Yogi Polywall. I'm Eddie Palmer. I'm Steve Jeffries. Uh, I'm Sean P. McCarthy. Uh, if there's no new episode for some reason, just check the Twitter feed. We'll tell you if one of us is dead, okay? <laughs> Steven, uh, get the get the get the mouth. Uh, get the yeah, yeah. I'll cut this out. Someone sing. Ooh, coronavirus. <laughs> <laughs>
It's gonna kill some of us But no one seems to care in the southeast regions I saw people in Nashville wearing cowboy hats at some concert Fuck them all Hey everyone, a quick end of episode update. Uh, We recorded this actually on Sunday. It is now Monday evening and uh, we have a a couple new developments to add. Uh, First off, the Dow Jones uh, once again set its record for the highest uh, point-wise drop in the history of the Dow Jones Industrial Average with negative 2,997 points. A uh, 12.93% 12.93% dip. I think on a percentage basis, that was, again, the largest since 1987. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, um, and also, uh, I've been reading reports that the uh, New York State unemployment website has been crashing from uh, new unemployment claims. But uh, a bigger development is uh, that we just spent a whole episode talking about how the Fed is not doing quantitative easing. And now it turns out the Fed is doing quantitative easing. Yeah, that's right. So literally an hour after we finished recording uh, what we thought would be the whole app, um, they Fed released an emergency announcement saying that they are going to go back to doing quantitative easing. And so how that's different is this would be like an asset purchase where it's not a repo where they collateralize some sort of security and hold it for a while and then give it back. So no more, no more swapping, just... Uh, this is no longer a swap. This is just purchasing uh, treasuries. And then also they mentioned uh, they're going to open up the, the doors for buying mortgage-backed securities. Agency... Wait, mortgage-backed securities? Or? Yeah. <laughs> really? Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. On a limited basis, but still. That's like a fundamental thought, shift. And like that's, that's how fluid things are right now. I thought they banned... Or I thought Dodd Frank banned something regarding mortgage-backed securities, but maybe I didn't understand the episode we made that well. No, no, it's it's definitely still legal. It's definitely still <laughs> happening. But yeah, so uh, this is a bit of a paradigm shift in their attempt to deal with the what they they believe is like a impending liquidity crisis. So now they're going to be just purchasing and holding some securities. Okay. Rather than uh, swapping or repoing them. So um, it's looking more like there will be an actual financial crisis on the horizon. Or Mm. you're making a face. I don't think so. Because I I think the general thrust of what we had to say in the episode still holds. Okay. And that like there's a major, there could be a recession coming up. Um, there's definitely a bear market that's going to continue for a long time Yeah, for like at least, you know, 10 months or something. Yeah. 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 And, uh, what was it? Uh, Goldman Sachs reported that they expected Q2, um, that the United States will have something like a 5% drop in GDP. Yeah. (laughs) That's another development. Uh, so yeah, I mean, if you have two consecutive quarters of contractions, uh, yeah, I mean, it's by definition a recession. Yeah. So, yeah, so uh the Goldman Sachs report kind of ups the likelihood that um we could fall into a recession as early as 
two quarters from now. Cool. Cool. (laughs) (laughs) I think this just underscores like this kind of reminds me of 2008 in, in one sense, at least that like, there's just like, there's just a period of time where every single day brings some new horrifying set of news about either the financial (laughs) markets or economic data. And the Fed is just sort of like changing the rules of how it's what it's what it thinks is prudent on like almost a daily basis with varying levels of success or complete lack of success. (laughs) Well, I mean, (laughs) if they're I I don't think their goal is to like affect the stock market per se. Right, right. But um, they have what the Fed wants to do above all else, I think. And whether or not this is they can actually do this is a, is an open question. Is ensure that there's liquidity for the system in order to not create some sort of panic, basically, in the the market for safer private and government securities. And it's kind of like some of it is based on kind of a mistaken belief about banking. And that, like, <laughs> some of it's for That's real. reassuring. <laughs> yeah, like, the first time we did QE, mm-hmm. um, so they're, they were buying up assets uh, in part, based on, partly on the belief that if banks have more what are called reserves, then they can go and lend them out. Like, they'll be more willing to, like, lend and uh, provision credit to people and then that will like help restart economic activity but the thing is having worked at a bank for a while um i can tell you that never once has anyone ever told me like oh man we've got this great opportunity for a loan but the thing is we don't have reserves (laughs) no one has ever said that (laughs) and in fact uh they don't it's 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 been proven that banks do not lend out reserves so when they when they lend they create a deposit in the customer's account custody and they simultaneously create a promissory note that says we're going to give you this deposit you're going to pay all of the deposit back plus interest Mm -hmm. at a later date Mm -hmm. and if they need to settle an outflow from their bank they go out and find what are called settlement balances and settlement balances are what were being exchanged for. Um, those were what were being traded for with treasury securities in the repurchase agreements. So like those were to settle like really short term, like liquidity needs of cash between banks. Okay. Yeah. So then uh, at this point, what would you say the outlook is if anything well i mean there's been a lot of new there's every every hour seemingly the i i have less faith in our government's ability to contain the virus and like i feel like that's where that's sort of where our attention should be perhaps more so than like looking for like you know trying to root out like a, a possible debt bubble or something yeah de blasio's staffers threatened to quit if he didn't close down the schools (laughs) and then just today he went to the gym (laughs) so (laughs) hey he has to i mean you have to stay on a schedule (laughs) you have to do your reps and like get through your set 
Apparently, the mayor's salary does not include uh, enough to get a Peloton knockoff <laughs> in your apartment. I'm just envisioning that ad, but it's Bill de Blasio. <laughs> Actually, I mean, he's pretty tall. Maybe he needs specialized equipment. That's only at that particular YMCA. So I think that they're rather rather than get rather than get bogged down looking for like oh what's going to be the next debt crisis like you know is it is it corporate debt is it auto lending mm-hmm. you know we have a crisis right now and it doesn't have anything to do with indebtedness per se right and it's called dealing with this virus and it's just causing us to shut down entire parts of the economy that uh, whether or not they were heavily indebted is right. sort of besides the point almost that they have no sales coming in. So like if you have no if you have no revenue, I mean yeah, that's kind of a bigger issue than like if you happen to have um a line of credit that you needed to pay off or something. Right. And once a once a company goes out of business, it's not like you can just, you know, once the virus clears up, flip the switch and put them back in business. It's it's a whole like the damage is already done. Yeah. So I mean if you if you just shut down entire sectors yeah, economic activity is just by definition halting. Yeah. So there's no sales revenue coming in. And if they did have some debt, yeah, they definitely can't pay it back then. But it may not have been, like, per se, the trigger that I think people are sort of looking for sometimes. Right. Uh, David Harvey talks a lot about how capitalism is, um, the definition of capitalism is value in motion. And now we're seeing what happens when... Uh, <laughs> Basically, you grab a shark by the tail. Uh, it just kind of dies. And that's uh, that's what we got, is a, a dead shark. Uh, please do not tell me what movie that's from, because uh, I don't want to hear about it. Uh, please tell so, me capitalism has jumped the shark. <laughs> and uh, so uh, with that, uh, we'll talk to you guys later. And um, yeah, hang in there. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.